All right, church, go ahead and, as you're seated, um, grab your Bibles, if you would. Make your way to Amos chapter 2. And then also, if you'll find Titus chapter 2 as well. I'm going to begin and end in Titus chapter 2. As you're finding your places, just a funny story for you if you're interested and knowing that last week I came up with a rather creative word uh, in my attempt uh, to speak and butcher the English language like I do so often. I wanted to say powerful and slow. I ended up saying power and slowful. Then I, I made, the, I made the, the comment that, how oh, well, at least my family's not here. They'll roll their eyes at me. And, and, and all that. Little did I know that as soon as the service was over and I looked at my phone, I had a couple of messages from my family letting me know that they were watching it on YouTube and they were correcting my grammar all the way in Missouri. So, can never escape that. I'll do my best today to get the English language right. I'm not making any promises. So last week, um, we looked at how Amos announced God's judgment upon six surrounding nations of Judah and Israel. And imagine that as his fellow Jews heard the roar of the lion condemn Gentile nations, I would imagine that they no doubt wanted to applaud or even celebrate the coming destruction that God was going to reign upon those Gentile nations. Perhaps they even longed to hear more about what God would have to say. But then Amos turns around and now begins to speak on behalf of the Lord to Judah and to Israel. And I can imagine that at that point, their mindset probably changed. What they failed to see and what we often fail to see is that God shows no favoritism or partiality. Therefore, God will not condone, He will not indulge, He will not give license to anyone to sin and to get away from sin without punishment. Although it might seem like God is slow in bringing about justice, as I said last week, may you know that justice delayed is never justice denied. So as children of God, we must live thoughtfully, righteously, and godly in this present age. I want to show you what Titus has to say in the book of Titus chapter 2. And there, beginning in verse number 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, with this in mind, keep your place there. We'll come back to it later. With this in mind, go ahead and go to Amos chapter 2. And listen to the roar of the lion as he speaks his judgment. Now, beginning with the, the nation of Judah, Look at verse number 4. It says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, 
because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Their lies also have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah, and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. So, so the people of Judah are guilty of some serious charges. He starts off and he, 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 he identifies how they're guilty of, of sinning repeatedly. They're just in this horrible cycle of sin. And how does he capture that reality? Well, he captures it when he says, for three transgressions and for four. And if you remember back to last week, that is a way of saying an indefinite number of transgressions that have ultimately finally run its course. In other words, God's patience has finally reached its end, and therefore he was now going to bring judgment because of the, the gross sin that the people were engaged with. And so uh, their engagement was sin was due in large part due to the fact that they rejected God's law. That would be the second serious charge, rejecting God's law. It says they rejected His law. They have not kept His statutes. They had the very Word of God to guide them and to instruct them on how to live a godly life. And yet, in spite of that, they rejected the message and any messenger of the Lord. They rejected God's law. They rejected His Word. They disobeyed God's commandments. And then we see this, and this is why it leads to the third series charge, and that is they were being led astray by lies. They were being led astray by lies. I like how the uh, NIV renders this verse, and I'll read it for you. It says, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. And then it says, because they've been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. And so here we see a little bit of clarity being brought into this picture of how they're being led astray by lies. They're being influenced in a very negative way by their parents, by their grandparents, by other ancestors. So sadly, the worship of false God was being passed down from one generation to the next. And it's because of, of Judah's sin that God was uh, forced to pronounce judgment upon his people. And so his fire or his judgment would burn the nation and consume the fortress or the citadels of Jerusalem. Now, now, don't forget, Amos was from a place called Tekoa. Tekoa was about eight miles south of Jerusalem. Amos is speaking to his own people. Amos is given this message of judgment that is to come upon, among his own people. And then surely his heart must have been heavy as he uttered these words of judgment to his own people. The blessing, I suppose, for Amos is that he didn't live long enough to see God follow through with the judgment on his people. Nebuchadnezzar attacks Judah in 586 B.C., and that's less than about 200 years from this message of judgment that Amos proclaims. And so, as Nebuchadnezzar attacks, it burns the temple, destroys the city, and takes thousands of captives 
to Babylon where they would live in the midst of gross idolatry for 70 years. Now, however, unlike the six surrounding Gentile nations, Judah would not be completely destroyed. God would allow a remnant of the people to survive. And so he allowed this remnant of Jews to, to one day eventually return so that they might establish the nation and, and rebuild the temple. And God warns us repeatedly through His Word that judgment will come about as a result of our disobedience and unfaithfulness. If we disobey the Lord, if we reject His Holy Word, if we worship the gods of this world, then His hand of judgment will fall upon us as well. And so listen to the, the roar of the lion. He goes from Judah. Now the roar is focused upon Israel. And Amos is going to expose three flagrant sins of the people of Israel. He begins in verse number 6. It says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. These who pant after the very dust of the earth on the land, the, uh, of the earth on the head of the helpless. So, so to begin with, the people of the northern kingdom are guilty of gross injustice. Guilty of injustice. They're supported by a system of corrupt judges. And there the, the rich were, were suing the poor, taking advantage of the poor. People so desperately poor, they couldn't pay their bills. And as a result, the wealthy were taking advantage of that and then taking those that were poor and forcing them into a lifetime of servitude or slavery. And even if they couldn't even afford a pair of sandals, the poor, they weren't forgiven of a debt. They, they, they weren't helped in, in any way. Instead, they were trampled on like dust of the earth. And so tragically, uh, the people of the northern kingdom were denying true justice to the very people in society that needed it the most. And, and yet their, their heart had grown cold and callous, and instead of helping those that were struggling, they were using that as an opportunity to benefit themselves. And so the people were guilty of injustice, but that's not all. They're guilty of gross immorality as well. Verse number 7 continues, and it says, And a man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. The fact that this particular sin is mentioned, I believe it suggests that this sin was a very common practice among the people. Both father and son were resorting to the same girl. I'll be careful on how I unpack this this morning. But they're having sexual relationships with the, with the same girl. The same girl. Let's, let that just sink in a little bit. So what's happening here? 
what is, what's, what's really being played out. Some people think, and I don't think this is what's happening here, but I'll give you what, what some theologians believe. Uh, some people believe that, that perhaps fathers and son were going to uh, temples and they were engaging with, with temple prostitutes in a, a gross form of heathen idolatry. I don't think that's what's mentioned here. I don't think that's what's really happening because of the word that's used, girl, is rarely used to express that type of person. I think what's more likely the scene that's being played out, when you take it in the context of how the, the wealthy are taking advantage of the poor, I think what we see here is they're referring to the selling of a poor young girl selling her into the sex industry to be used as a concubine for all the the men of uh, a particular household so the people are guilty of, of gross immorality and then if if they're if this isn't the uh, relation to temple prostitution then not just it, it's, it's immorality but it would be idolatry as well so, so they're guilty of injustice, they're, they're guilty of immorality, and not only that, they're guilty of some extreme hypocritical worship. Look at verse number 8. See, with us not having a great background in Old Testament laws and stuff, I don't think that we would see this as clearly as it is, but I'll help us understand. Look at verse 8, it says, On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Okay, so first of all, uh, may, you, may you notice that they're stretching out beside every altar, which implies they're, they're worshiping at the altar to the Lord of Lords, and they're worshiping at the altars to any and every other false god imaginable. There is no discrimination as to the altar at which they're worshiping at. They're worshiping at every altar. Although they profess to worship the Lord, they would worship anything. And the depth of their hypocrisy is seen in the garments that they use and the wine that's being consumed in their worship. See, while they profess to obey and follow the Lord, they actually use the garments that they obtained from those that are poor, and they're using that in their worship. And this is a serious violation from the Lord's instruction. In fact, I'll show you. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22. So Amos says that on garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. So these garments were taken as a pledge for debt. And so under ancient Jewish law, a garment taken and pledged for a debt was to be returned to the owner before nightfall. Exodus chapter 22. Pick up in verse number 25. It says, If you lend money to my people... To the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. 
Verse 26, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, and that's exactly what's happening in Amos chapter 2, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. For that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. So Exodus chapter 22 makes it clear that the clothing taken as part of a pledge should have been returned to the poor before nightfall. And so here the wealthy were using it as their garments when they were going before any altar. So not only were they using garments that they had no right to to hold on to, then it also said that they were getting drunk on the wine that was purchased from the fines that they extracted from the poor. It's a messed up system that they're engaged in. It's hypocritical to the core. It is so corrupt what they're doing. And and so what the Lord does through Amos is after describing their sinful present condition, Amos reminds them of their glorious past. Go back to Amos chapter 2. He's reminding them of what God has done for them in the past. And he says that it was God that destroyed other nations so that they could enter into the promised land. Verse number 9 says, it will, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, though his height was like the height of cedars, and he was strong as oaks. I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. Then it was God that, that led them out of Egypt. Verse 10 begins, It was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So God not only led them out of Egypt, God cared for them and provided for them in the wilderness. Verse 10 continues, And I led you in the wilderness 40 years that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. Then it was God who gave him his word through his chosen prophets. Verse 11 Then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? And so instead of being humbled by this blessing from God, the people rebelled against God. They rebelled against God by rejecting the message of His chosen prophets And they rebelled against God by forcing Nazarites to break their vows. That's why it says in verse number 12, it says, But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Jewish people in the northern kingdom wanted neither the word of God, nor did they want any examples of godly living in their midst. And so having identified the sinfulness of God's people, the inevitable announcement of judgment comes. Look at verse number 13. It says, Behold, I'm being weighed down beneath you as a wagon is weighted down when filled with sheaves. Flight will perish from the swift, and the stalwart will not strengthen his power, nor the mighty man save his life. He who grasps the bow will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape. Nor will he who rides the horse save his life. 
Even the bravest among the warriors will flee naked in that day, declares the Lord. In other words, the people were going to be crushed, groaning and moaning under the weight of God's judgment. No one would escape His judgment. Verse number 14 says, Certainly not the swift. They'll not escape, nor the strong, nor the mighty. Verse number 15 says, Even the archer can't escape. The fastest runner isn't going to be able to escape. Uh, the, the, the mighty horsemen, they're not going to be able to outrun God's judgment. Verse 16 says, Not even uh, the mightiest of warriors will be able to escape the judgment that God was going to bring. May you understand that with every warning of coming judgment, there is always built into it a call to repentance. Sometimes that call is specifically spoken, and sometimes the call to repentance is merely implied. It's the prophet Isaiah who proclaimed in Isaiah chapter 55, verse number 3, Incline your ears and come to me. Listen that you may live. Incline your ears that you may come to me. Listen that you may live. The nation of Israel has refused to listen to the voice of the Lord's prophet. They refused to listen because they didn't like what they were hearing. They didn't like the message. They didn't want to be challenged. They didn't want to be shaken to the core. They didn't want to have to disturb what their normal pattern of living was. They liked what they were doing. They liked how they were living. And they didn't want anyone or anything to uproot that which they were comfortable with. Sound familiar? Are we not guilty of that same thing right here? Right now, people still ignore God's warnings. They still ignore His clear word. Why? Because they don't like what they hear. Because they don't want to have to change. They ignore what is said. They ignore what's made known to them. Quite frankly, because they want to pursue what they want more than they want to seek and pursue what God would have for them in life. I wonder if that, if you wrestle with that today, if you struggle with that. With that in mind, let's 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 go to where we started. I hope you're still there. Titus chapter two. Titus chapter two. Beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Then it says, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, 
zealous for good deeds. Like, is this describing who you are today? Is this a beautiful picture of your testimony right now? Like, do you seek to deny ungodliness and worldly desires in your life today? Do you seek to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age? Is that your heart's desire? Are you looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? I mean, after all, He gave Himself for us. He gave Himself to redeem us from every, every, every lawless deed. To redeem us. To purify us as a people for His own possession. Then that last little phrase, zealous for good deeds. Is zealous an adjective that you would describe yourself when it comes about doing good deeds for the name of our Lord and Savior? Are you zealous to do good deeds? Are you anxious every day to get out there and do something for the glory of God to be made known? I read in Romans chapter 12 how God has beautifully brought us all together. We're different parts, but one body and each of us has a different role to fulfill. We have a different function. Do you wake up zealous to fulfill that role? Would zealous be the adjective to describe your Christian faith? Or would casually convenient be more likely to describe who you are? Oh, I'm willing to, if you don't ask me to change too much in my life. Oh, I'm willing to serve in this capacity as long as I can fit it into whatever it is that's more important to you. Are you zealous for good deeds? Are you zealous that, that God might be glorified in and through your life. After all, as we look forward to the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it would be helpful for us to remember that He gave Himself up to redeem us. To redeem us. To redeem us from every lawless deed. My prayer is that as a, as a church family, that we would grow more and more in love with the Word of God and more and more faithful and obedient to the will of God in our lives. That this would be the place that we come to encourage one another, to support each other, to, to laugh with one another, to cry with one another, to struggle side by side with one another. And as God speaks His judgment, upon the six Gentile nations and then upon the two Jewish nations, we can see in that that no one will escape judgment from God. There comes a point when the patience of our Lord runs out. And in this moment, 
may we give thanks that we still have time to change who we are to be a better reflection of what God's made us to be. We're going to pray. We're just going to move into a time of prayer. Music will be playing. The altar is open. Some of the leadership will be down here more than willing to pray with you and for you and over you if you desire. But as we move into this time of prayer, I would ask almost what I would ask every single week. What's one thing that you can do today to improve and strengthen your commitment to our Lord and Savior? Is it a sin that needs to be confessed? A commitment that needs to be made? Forgiveness that needs to be extended? Forgiveness that needs to be received? What's the one thing? Would you allow in this moment, would you allow the Holy Spirit to guide you and to lead you into discovering that one thing? I promise you, if you would fully submit and to surrender to the working of the Holy Spirit. It's not a, a mystery that is difficult for us to figure out. It takes a, a willing spirit. Father, help us in this time of invitation. As we pray unto you, may your spirit move among us, guiding, encouraging, strengthening, convicting, doing whatever is necessary in our lives so that we can leave here differently than how we came. Father, I pray that you would be glorified by what you see in and among your people. May your name be praised and glorified forever. We commit this time unto you.